BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, good friends. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod and welcome to this week's Reporters Roundtable. Looking back at the big stories of the week with three top political reporters. Well, for the second time recently, former President Donald Trump actually sat down for a legal deposition this week. Now the big question is, will he answer a subpoena to testify before the January 6th committee? With eyes on the midterms, President Biden moved to hold down gas prices. But is he really doing enough to help Democratic candidates? And what about Barack Obama or Bill Clinton or Hillary Clinton? Meanwhile, Kevin McCarthy promised that if Republicans recapture the House, there will be no more blank check for continued American support for Ukraine, a move that delighted Democrats and stunned his fellow Republicans. Is McCarthy undermining his own commitment to America? And in a rare show of a sense of humor, Mike Pence said he's not sure about supporting Donald Trump in 2024 because he might have someone better in mind. <laughs> well, lots to talk about. Let's dive right in with today's panel. Jeff Dufour, Editor-in-Chief, The National Journal. Hi, Jeff. Good morning. Emily Gooden, U.S. political reporter for The Daily Mail. And Melanie Mason, National Political Correspondent for The L.A. Times. Hi, Melanie. Hi, good to be here. Good to have you from the West Coast. And, you know, uh, we got to start here. Normally, we don't give a damn what happens across the pond, but you cannot escape this this blockbuster move that happened this week in the UK with Prime Minister Liz Truss suddenly stepping down after, what was it, maybe six weeks in office, if that. Emily, you report for the Daily Mail. What the hell happened? What are your colleagues telling you? Oh, gosh, what a crazy mess. I mean, the story was just nuts. I mean, it was about the economy, just like voters here in America say the economy is their number one concern. It's the same in England. And um, one curious thing I learned is that in England, most housing mortgages um, are adjustable rate mortgages. So when the markets in, in the UK took the big dive that they did, people immediately saw their house payments go up and that mm. just triggered a lot of it. Um, so it, it's, again, it's, it's the economy stupid as we hear in a lot of elections. That's what people are worried about, what they're seeing come out of their pocketbooks. So Jeff, I think what really surprised us and us, the people of the UK as well is how fast it occurred. So here is the famous clip of Liz Truss one day and then Liz Truss the next day. Mr. Speaker, I am a fighter and not a quitter. I am resigning as leader of the Conservative Party. <laughs> Jeff, overnight, it almost makes you jealous, right? That they can get rid of a guy, of one person, and get somebody else in pretty fast. Yeah, I, I've, I've got to, at this point, give a little shout out to the head of lettuce. 
which was all over Twitter yesterday. That someone had a head of lettuce that lasted in the in the fridge longer than Liz Truss's uh, uh, tenure. Um, I'll give some credit to uh, NBC's first read this morning, who made a great point. Uh, they pointed out that neither the U.S. nor the U.K. it seems has really recovered from the turmoil of 2016 with with Brexit and Trump sort of mm-hmm. in, the, in a span of six months from one another. Uh, the conservatives over there obviously haven't been able to figure it out, uh, leadership. And then labor also hasn't been able to provide an answer, partly because of poor leadership in their own ranks. Uh, Keir Starmer might uh, might ascend at some point uh, if the conservatives continue to, uh, to, to weaken and can't find anybody to run the ship over there. But, you know, leaders really do matter, especially at historical inflection points like this. And they're pulling from a really thin bench over there. And depending on what happens here in November, we'll have new leaders to test here and we'll see if they're up to the task. Right. So there is a connection between what happened with Liz Truss uh, and what's happening here with the economic uh, debate about where the economy is heading. Um, Larry Kudlow, uh, of course, was CNBC for so long and then went into the Trump administration as a chief economic advisor. He was very, very happy with what Liz Truss was uh, was recommending, was proposing, and said, this is what we're going to do here if Republicans take over the House. Here is Larry Kudlow. The U.S. midterm elections cavalry arrived early in London. What do I mean by that? Well, the new British Prime Minister Liz Truss has laid out a terrific supply-side economic growth plan, which looks a lot like the basic thrust of Kevin McCarthy's commitment to America plan. Let's start with Truss. She is slashing tax rates and deregulating energy. I just love it. So, Melanie, uh, (laughs) is this seeing what happened in the UK? Is this trickle-down tax cut theory, you know, what Republicans ought to be trumpeting right now? Yeah, I don't know if this is their strongest selling point uh, heading into the final two weeks of the election. I mean, look, I think that that um, that as much as I think Americans have been uh, staring in awe over what's going on uh, in the UK, I still think that understanding perhaps all of the specific, uh, specifics about what brought uh, trust down might be a little bit hard to translate into American politics. But I do think that, that what's interesting here is that Kudlow sounds like a Republican from from of, of yesteryear, right? I mean, this is supply side mm. economics. This is really what have been the Republican tenets under Reagan, um, the conservative tenets uh, under Thatcher. But this is not what the Republican Party really is anymore. And so I do wonder, of course, we are hearing McCarthy talk about tax cuts, but that is not really what their more populist leaning base is demanding. And so I think in addition to maybe that not being the most appealing pitch to maybe moderate or independent voters, I'm very curious if the base uh, is really into this idea of slashing uh, tax rates, um, particularly if you're looking at for the upper tiers. Um, that kind of feels like a fairly sort of outdated Republican policy, given the thrust of the party these days. Yeah, it's been a long time waiting for the trickle to trickle down, right? <laughs> maybe, maybe it doesn't sell anymore. Okay, back here at home, it did surprise a lot of observers that after trying to delay it, delay it, delay it, uh, former President Trump had to give in this week and sit down for a deposition. We don't know what he said. Maybe he took the fifth the whole time uh, in the case of Gene Carroll accusing him of rape in a Bloomingdale's dressing room uh, many years ago. Uh, Emily, 
this is just one of several legal setbacks a president has had, recent, former president has had uh, recently. Uh, what do you hear around the White House that, or, or from some of the Trump people that, that his legal troubles kind of compounding and, and does he realize it? Well, they and the former president always portray Donald Trump as a victim. He's, you know, a victim of a witch hunt, a victim of Joe Biden's Justice Department, a, a, you know, a victim of whatever he can point to, to make sure something is not his fault. Um, so that's the typical MO that they're still giving. And But what I'm curious about, and as you mentioned, we don't know what was said in that deposition. It was behind closed doors. But it could come out if there is a criminal proceeding or if this goes to trial when she, where she's suing him. Um, mm -hmm. So we could learn. And then, of course, timing is everything. Do we learn that next year as we're going into 2024? What is this going to mean for the next presidential election? So, but Jeff, when you look at it, I mean, so there is this case, uh, which is, uh, you know, underway, right? Yeah. Uh, there's a New York attorney general's case where he also gave a deposition and, and took the fifth. Yes. There's sort of a dual investigation from the justice world. And one is the documents that he took to Mar-a-Lago. And the other is perhaps some criminal investigation related to his role in January 6th and the insurrection. Uh, I mean, that's a lot to deal with. Doesn't this all at one time just come crashing down or does uh, he? Don't, don't do forget think? Georgia. Oh, Georgia. Sorry. Thank he's you. Got yeah. the, he's got the Georgia case, which uh, some legal observers think that an indictment there could be, could come even quicker than an mm. indictment from the justice department. Um, he is on the, on the precipice of some serious legal liability. I am, I've always been skeptical and I remain skeptical that he is ever going to see the inside of a jail cell. Um, but I think he's looking at some serious financial uh, penalties in, uh, across a, a lot of these cases, um, fines, restitution, et cetera. Um, oh, and then the other one is we've got the, uh, the Trump organization itself on trial in Manhattan uh, coming up later this month, I think. Right. Um, right. That's, I, I mean, we could probably go on all day and just think of additional cases in which he's implicated. Um, but yes, uh, and, and to Emily's point, the you can only yell witch hunt so long. Uh, at, at, at some point, it's either all a witch hunt or the, the Occam's razor explanation is that uh, he's involved in a lot of shady things, uh, which ultimately now are starting to be investigated now that he's out of the White House. Uh, some of these things even predate him going into the White House. So it's hard to call that a witch hunt. Uh, the Eugene the Carroll case, the, um, the, the accounting gimmicks in New York, uh, that goes back to, to the 90s in some cases. So it, it's certainly not, uh, not part of any great witch hunt to get him out of the White House. So Melanie, uh, and you look at the, the, the political landscape nationwide. Uh, last week, we talked on the roundtable a little bit about Paul, Paul Ryan saying, that in 2024, nobody's going to be interested in Donald Trump as a presidential candidate anymore. Uh, this week, Jeb Bush said, by 2024, the Republican Party is really going to want somebody else. Is Are all of these legal troubles kind of, you know, um, taking away the allure of Donald Trump and the Republican Party? Do you see any kind of weakening of his stranglehold on the Republican Party base? 
I think that there's an element of that. I mean, I think when you're out and you're talking to Republican-based voters, it is particularly when we're talking about Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, it really is telling how often his name comes up as somebody who they see as kind of maybe the next iteration of this Trump movement that they started. So a lot you hear a lot. I'm still a very big fan of Trump, but maybe we need some fresh blood, need somebody new. But I think so much of this really depends on the other Republican candidates in 2024. I mean, I think what we saw in 2016, and that's what a lot of these comments from Paul Ryan and Jeb Bush sort of sound like, quite frankly, is what we heard in advance of 2016 is, well, it's never going to get that far, right? At some point, somebody's going to stop, like step in and Republican voters are going to sort of um, kind of click back in and realize they want somebody who has experience in government or what have you. Like it, But there was never really a, a coordinated or... Um, really strong effort by his uh, opponents to try and block him from getting the nomination. They always thought that somebody else was going to do it. And I think that that's now going to be key going into 2024. Does somebody like DeSantis really mount a serious opposition run to Trump and try and peel away these voters or for fear of alienating these people who are still fans of Trump, uh, do they kind of go with the kid gloves and sort of, you know, step back and maybe wait to see if he implodes? I think that the wait to see if he implodes uh, tack has been going on for about five or six years now. Um, and at least when we're talking about Republican base voters to get him to through a, a primary, that still has not fully been the case. It really is going to depend on some of these other opponents to actually present a real challenge. And I still think we're waiting to see if that's what DeSantis and others decide to do. Well, of course, uh, thanks, Melanie. Of course, Trump is not on the ballot this time, but a lot of um, echoes of Donald Trump are being heard. Uh, I saw the, the yesterday that there are some 43 election deniers, Republicans who deny that uh, President Biden is a legitimate president of the United States, that are running this for governor, for attorney general, or for secretary of state, offices that would have a lot to do with how the elections are run in 2024. Um, when you look across the political landscape, Jeff, uh, some of these candidates have a good chance of winning. What does that mean? They do. Uh, the, the Washington Post uh, crunched all the numbers on this, and they came up with the number of 291 uh, Whoa. candidates in all. House, Senate, and key statewide offices. It depends how you define key, key statewide offices to get to that number. Uh, but they either deny the election results or question the election results. And I think that's really the, the, the key point here is that you, even if you don't outright deny them, uh, you, you can't accept them and be uh, accepted into the Republican Party fold in a lot of uh, areas mm -hmm. around the country. Uh, you at least have to give some lip service uh, to, to the idea that that something may not have been uh, above board here. Um, and I just it brings me to uh, Major Garrett's new book. I interviewed him uh, about his new book a couple of weeks ago, uh, and, and he and his co-author pointed out that uh, not only was the election above board, but it was probably the cleanest, most verifiable election that we've ever had in the country's history. Uh, in terms of paper trail, in terms of audits, in terms of lawsuits before, lawsuits after, all of which have have determined that things are are on the up and up. Um, but that obviously doesn't satisfy uh, the Republican base, two thirds of which is still uh, in in the throes of denialism in one way, shape, or form. It's become sort of a of a of a marker that that you're in the club. 
Uh, mm-hmm. Whether or not you actually believe it, you have to say that you believe it so that you're recognized as 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 being on the on the in. Uh, and by the way, for a quick program note, <laughs> Jeff, you got to him first, but Major Garrett is our next guest on our podcast next Tuesday. He's, he's an excellent guest. Uh, I'm glad you've got Major Garrett uh, and Dave Becker, his co-author, with their book, uh, The Big Truth, which they present as the way to uh, combat uh, the big lie, uh, if you will. Uh, but Emily, let's take the Secretary of State, man running for Secretary of State, his name escapes me right now, in Nevada, for example. He said that he would not certify the results of the, he would not have certified the results of the 2020 election, which means, right, if if elected, he might not certify the results of 2024 either if he didn't like them. Yeah, that's a great point. And this is something Democrats are going to have to put into their calculus as they're preparing for 2024, not just raising money to campaign, but to raise money for lawsuits. And it's common now, especially after Bush Gore in Florida in 2020, for both parties to dispatch lawyers in the capitals of states where they think it's going to be close and to be prepared to call for a recount, to be prepared to to take the legal action necessary uh, to confirm a race. But this is going to be even bigger in 2024. They're going to have to have a huge networks of lawyers in the ground in several states just ready to counteract all of this that we're hearing and seeing. Right. Uh, final question on the on the Republican side, and uh, we'll take a quick break later and get to the Democratic side of the, of the question here of the midterms. Um, so, Melanie, Kevin McCarthy this week had several things he, he said that we're going to do if we take over the House, get back the House in uh, in 2022. Uh, we're going to take a quick, no more blank check for Iraq, we're gonna, uh, Ukraine, I'm sorry. Um, we're going to have a nationwide ban on abortion. Um, we're going to not necessarily increase the debt ceiling. We're going to make sure there's some serious cuts to programs like maybe Social Security and Medicare before we increase the debt ceiling. Uh, and, of course, we're going to investigate the hell out of Hunter Biden. Uh, Melanie, this doesn't jibe with the commitment to America that Kevin McCarthy released about a month ago. What's going on? Well, you know, far be it for me to read the mind of uh, Kevin McCarthy, but um, I do think that it's interesting that some of the um, commitments or the plans that he laid out in some ways seem to be signaling plans uh, to Democrats as much to Republicans. I think that there's um, a sense that particularly with the threats to the debt ceiling or the aid to Ukraine, that in some ways it's it's sort of signaling to Democrats of, hey, if you want to get this done, uh, maybe take this on in the lame duck, as opposed to uh, asking a Republican-led uh, Congress or at least a Republican-led House uh, to take this on, um, which is pretty remarkable because it seems like it's sort of a tacit understanding that these are uh, policy commitments that do need to get done, but he does not want to have the responsibility of ushering that through the House. And then you offset that with things like a nationwide abortion ban. Um, I think that that also tells you that Republicans are feeling a little bit better about the abortion debate than they were, say, a month ago, um, whereas I think that they were going to try to really try to avoid um, thrusting this issue back into uh, the limelight. This does give Democrats more ammo to say that a national abortion ban could be on the table if Republicans win. But McCarthy does not seem to be uh, too concerned about that being back in the conversation. I think it just goes to show how confident Republicans are feeling right now about voters' moods about the economy. Right. Uh, So we have talked a lot about the Republican side of the issue. That's what's going on with uh, there is a President Joe Biden, Democrat, and a lot of Democratic leaders 
what is their message and how are they doing with their messaging? We'll get into that with our panel, uh, Jeff Dufour, Melanie Mason, and Emily Gooden, right after a quick break here on the Bill Press Pod and today's Roundtable. And today's roundtable is brought to you by the American Federation of Teachers, the great men and women, teachers of America, under the leadership of President Randy Weingarten. They are doing the Lord's work in the classroom every day from uh, preschool through K through 12 and higher education as well, plus a whole uh, big contingent of the AFT who represent the Nurses of America. So the Nurses, Teachers of America, we thank them for their great work, and we thank them particularly for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we're back with today's roundtable. Joining us again, Melanie Mason, who's national political correspondent for the LA Times, Emily Gooden, U.S. political reporter for the Daily Mail, and Jeff Dufer, editor-in-chief of the National Journal oh, they thought they had had this problem resolved, and all of a sudden, Saudi Arabia cuts production, and it looks like gas prices are going to creep up again. Jeff Dufour, this is the last thing Joe Biden wanted to see, but what can he do about it? Nothing. Uh, (laughs) Certainly not in two and a half weeks, he can't. Um, And gas prices are, they're, they're, politically, they're the worst marker for inflation and prices because you can drive down a major road in your hometown and there might be eight gas stations on that main road and you're driving past them all and it's just like a big flashing sign every time you go by with the price, which is higher than you paid last week, uh, which is higher than the week before that, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, so, no, the... One of the reasons we've seen this this movement in polls over this week is that the issue matrix has just uh, turned out of Democrats' favor and toward Republicans' favor. Um, uh, people are talking a little bit less about abortion. Uh, the January 6th committee hearings are coming to a close. Uh, and it's all right now about the economy and and crime, 
which is obviously going to play to uh, to Republicans' strength. Uh, there was a an NBC poll a couple weeks ago which showed the. the where where each party was strongest, and it was on those issues. Um, and Bill McInturf, who, who helps run the poll, said, "Look, there's one campaign about abortion and the climate, uh, and Democrat and democracy, and Democrats are winning that campaign. There's another campaign about economics and cr- and crime, and Republicans are winning that campaign. So it's that second campaign, the one that Republicans mm-hmm. are winning." that's now in the forefront and, you know, the winds could shift again in another two weeks, but, uh, but right now mm-hmm. it's certainly advantage Republicans. Yeah. Melanie, let's talk a little bit about that because we remember at the beginning of the year, if not the end of last year, all the talk was about the red wave. It was going to be a blowout. I mean, you know, that the Senate was gone to the Republicans. I mean, Joe Biden would be lucky to stay in the white house, a house, maybe 30, 40, 50 seats. Right. And then suddenly everybody says, uh-oh, Democrats are coming back. It's going to be really close, maybe not 40 seats, maybe difference of five, and it's it's trending in Democrats' favor. And as Jeff points out, in the last week, the stories have been, uh-oh, it's shifting now to the Republicans. I mean, can we really talk about these national trends with any meaning, any credibility? No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, it's hard to know what to believe, really. It is hard to know what, what to believe. And look, I mean, I don't think that, that look, we look at these trends based on sort of some historical data and, and sort of our, our best um, sort of analysis. But I also think that a really heavy dose of humility is, is needed here, um, not only because of what we've seen in past election cycles, that the polls cannot necessarily be the best indicators of where things are, um, but also because I do think that we have um, we have kind of two forces that are, are kind of coming at each other at the same time. And the first is just kind of historical precedent and I think general political gravity, right? I mean, midterms are typically terrible years for the party in power. Joe Biden's approval ratings are still fairly low, all things considered, and inflation is high. I mean, in some ways, this should be a slam dunk for Republicans. And then you had something like the Dobbs ruling, which really was a political earthquake. And I think that over the summer, there was a sense of, is that going to be enough to counter uh, what the political gravity is? And I think that right now, the question is, is that it seems like political gravity is like kicking back in, but you know, who, who really knows that at this point, early votes have started, voters are voting. I think that we're going to be, um, the polls are going to be perhaps a, a, a guidepost, but I don't think that we should take them um, blindly uh, as articles of faith. Um, and I, 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 to your point, also like the expectation game is a hell of a thing, right? So I think that now Republicans, after feeling a little bit nervous um, over the summer, that Democrats might actually be able to hold on to one or, or both houses. Uh, now, if they have had even smaller margins of wins, they're going to take this as a huge victory, whereas there was a lot of conversation about a gigantic red wave only about six months ago. And so, look, at the end of the day, control of Congress is control of Congress. Obviously, the size of the margins matter a lot. But I mean, that close is not going to be enough when it comes to Democrats if it's looking to um, try and hold on to these houses against these historical headwinds. Well, and Emily, I guess my skepticism is partly based on like, if you look at these, let's take a couple of important Senate races, right? Um, Georgia. Yep. Yep. Voters of Georgia are going to make their decision on whether they think Herschel Walker's qualified or Ralph Raphael Warnock's doing a good job so far and will continue to do so. Pennsylvania. Is John Fetterman up for the job? Is Mehmet Oz know what the hell he's talking about, right? Or whatever. In any state, it seems to me, these broad trends that reporters are fond of talking about 
don't really matter when it comes down. People are just going to decide which of the two candidates they like better. Yes and no. Um, okay. Yeah. So, yes, uh, local issues are important. State issues are important. But at the same time, what is unfortunately out of the control of incumbents is that when voters are frustrated and angry and where their lives are hard, they take it out on the party in power and they yeah. think we need change. And they just something needs, something needs to change. We need change. We need change. So that could really be lead to an anti-incumbent wave. It's it's hard to tell these days. It's hard to predict. I feel like there's a different poll coming out every day that shows something different. And, you know, I've done this for years, as have the rest of you. And it's frustrating for me. So I'm sure it's frustrating for voters. But, um, yeah, I just feel like, unfortunately, there are some things out of the control of incumbents and the cost of living, the Everyone's seen their grocery prices go up. Everyone's seen the gas prices go up. And that affects people's lives every single day. Right. So, uh, Jeff, I want to come back to, uh, we talked about gas prices. Uh, little the president, if, if anything, he can do. But President Biden did uh, want to try to make a, a point this week that anybody who says gas prices are going up because we're not producing enough oil doesn't know what they're talking about. Here's the president. Let's debunk some myths here. My administration has not stopped or slowed U.S. oil production. Quite the opposite. We're producing 12 million barrels of oil per day. And by the end of this year, we will be producing 1 million barrels a day, more than the day in which I took office. In fact, we're on track for record oil production in 2023. And today, the United States is the largest producer of oil and petroleum products in the world. Okay, so Jeff. So my question is, that's, that's either fact or it's not fact. I don't want to really debate the, the, the truth of what the president is saying. I take it as fact, but whatever. My question is, is that enough, that kind of messaging from the White House? Is the president doing enough to help Democratic candidates? Why isn't he out there campaigning in Georgia and Florida and North Carolina and Nevada and other states. Should he be, or is he better just staying in the White House? I think he's correct on the merits, and I think he's probably uh, within his rights to 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 th- push back against that that red herring about about the mm-hmm. about our domestic production. The fact of the matter, however, is that that's not how global markets work. Um, the price of oil is determined on a global scale by all the factors uh, coming into mm-hmm. the global market. Um, on the broader point, I think he's probably better off, uh, doing what he's been doing, which has been very judicious appearances around the country. Uh, Fetterman last night, was it, uh, Mm -hmm. Oregon last week, uh, a fundraiser here and there, no big rallies, uh, my colleague, George Condon uh, crunched the numbers. He's done almost no uh, headlining rallies the way other other presidents have in the past, um, even presidents in, a, in in kind of a weak position the way he is. Uh, and the reason he's not going to those swing states is that his numbers in those states just aren't very good. Uh, and he's especially among independents, which is which are the, the the voters he has to win over, and those candidates have to win over. And it's unclear that it, it's going to. Uh, it's going to be beneficial at all to those to those candidates he's trying to help. Um, now there's there's the question of whether some other prominent Democrats should be getting out more. Uh, the Obamas, mm-hmm. uh, you know, even Jill Biden, I think might might be more effective than than Joe Biden in some of these areas. Um, but I, you know, 
I think that the impact of this is even somewhat limited. There aren't many people who are going to go to an Obama rally for, let's say, Val Demings, who weren't already going to vote for Val Demings. Uh, that, that's an interesting question about, uh, for example, you could apply the same question to the rallies that Donald Trump is holding, right? Yes. Is there anybody beyond his base who's impacted by them? But, but Melanie, uh, Jeff raises a point. Uh, in fact, President Obama, former president, has agreed, I think, to two states, three appearances maybe in two states. Michelle Obama is doing no political rallies at all, to my knowledge. She's selling a new book. Uh, Bill and Hillary Clinton... I haven't seen them on the campaign trail at all. Why aren't the big name Democrats out there, if, if Joe Biden's not, stumping for these Democratic candidates? Well, I think a question that we have to ask is, do the Democratic candidates want them there? Now, I think that the Obamas, <laughs> right? we can probably assume that the answer is yes, because the, the you know President Obama still remains to be you know, uh, very high popularity after leaving office, and, and Michelle Obama probably even more so. Um, and so you are seeing uh, the former president go to places like Wisconsin. Um, and that's really, um, that really is a, a, a base play, right? To try and juice up your democratic yeah. base. And even I think in the, in the case of Obama, I mean, he has a more enduring appeal perhaps to some of these independents um, who were, you know, even the Obama Trump voters back in the, uh, back in the day. Um, then I think a purely sort of, um, uh, democratic base um, juicer like um, like Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, for example, who actually is coming out here to California this weekend um, to Katie Porter's district um, of all places, which is very interesting. Interestingly enough, Katie Porter will not be at that rally, but AOC is going to be here <laughs> at UC Irvine, um, which again is clearly this effort to like juice turnout among uh, younger people, democratic base voters who maybe just aren't really feeling it, who aren't really feeling like they want to get out um, get out to the polls. Um, I think that with with in terms of the Clintons, you know, the Clintons have a, a lot of baggage. I think that they are a big draw among the Democratic base. Hillary Clinton also was actually out here in California um, for an event for Proposition One, which is our uh, ballot initiative to enshrine abortion rights into California state constitution. So there are some of these kind of targeted events that we are seeing. But you're right. They are not blanketing the country, um, you know, kind of going across country. And part of me also wonders if, if, if they did that, would that only call more attention to the fact that the president himself, Joe Biden, isn't doing that? So I wonder if maybe these more targeted, um, more sort of deliberate choices, um, picking and choosing what their audiences are, um, might actually be doing the White House a little bit of a favor. Uh, so, Emily, Jeff mentioned uh, Val Demings and the race in Florida against Marco Rubio. There's been a lot of question about how effective Democrats are on messaging, whether they're tough enough, whether they're you know, really getting in the face of these Republicans. Uh, at their debate the other night, the question came up about um, sensible gun control measures. Val Demings turned her uh, uh, passion on Marco Rubio uh, on that issue in this fashion. Here she is. The majority of people in our nation want us to do just that. How long will you watch? People being gunned down in first grade, fourth grade, high school, college, church, synagogue, a grocery store, a movie theater, a mall, and a nightclub, and do nothing. Emily, uh, maybe we need to see more of that from Democrats? Yeah, she uh, is a former chief of police at Orlando and is completely credible and passionate on the issue, as you heard her say. Um, Yeah, there is... A sense of caution, I think, to kind of echo what Jeff was saying among Democratic candidates. It's the electorate has been so back and forth just in the past few years. I think they're really struggling to know what to do. 
Do you stand next to the president? Do you not stand next to the president? Do you get passionate and risk looking angry or do you hold back? It's, it's, it's a, we, these past few cycles have just been a really unusual year in politics. And I'm curious to see if this continues or how the pendulum's going to swing. Yeah, I think we all are. And with less than three weeks to go uh, before the midterms, uh, now is really, um, uh, this is where all the decisions are being made. I think, Melanie, you were the one that pointed out that early voting has already started. Uh, the, title, the total I saw yesterday was as of uh, the late, late 11 p.m., October 19, 4.6 million Americans had already voted. So one thing for sure, these midterm elections are generating a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of interest, and it could be a record turnout, which I think is always good for America. Great wrap up of the week, um, Melanie and Emily and Jeff. Thank you so much. Uh, before we let you uh, start your weekend, though, uh, there had to be one story of all the stories this week that caught your attention. We always call it our favorite story of the week. What stopped you in your tracks and made you laugh or weep or moan or whatever? Uh, where do we go? Jeff, you've, you're first. Well, every time you think that the Washington Commanders organization cannot possibly <laughs> sink any farther, they, they oh. blow up your expectations and they sink farther. Uh, this week's installment was uh, a report from Channel 9 here in D.C., where a, uh, a season ticket holder was at the opening day game, and he entered uh, what they call the 50-50 raffle. Uh, they have this at the baseball stadium around here, too. Mm -hmm. uh, you throw in 20 bucks or however much you want. Half the money goes to the winner. The other half goes to a charity. Uh, so he had to harass the team for a month to get his $14,000 that he won, uh, finally gets it, and the check bounces. <laughs> hey, this is a, a, a franchise that's worth a, you know, a, a north of a billion dollars. The $14,000 check bounces. Uh, of course, was it a personal check from Dan Snyder? <laughs> right. Of course, the team apologized and said it was an accounting oversight. But of course, what I haven't seen is, did the check to the charity also bounce? Or, or did the charity have to harass them to get their $14,000? <laughs> oh, man. So we're stuck with them. I have seen growing pressure even among some other um, NFL owners that maybe they think it's time to get rid of Dan Snyder. We'll see whether that goes anywhere. Uh, Emily, what caught your attention? Well, I have to go back to what we talked to at the beginning, and that is the current state of British politics. And oh, the yes. fact that a serious contender for the next prime minister is yeah. <laughs> Boris Johnson. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's deja vu all over again. I mean, just he is a serious contender for this job after quitting it, what, two months ago? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And there's a decent chance he might get it. So <laughs> I mean, what do you do but like hold up your hands and shake your head? <laughs> no, it is. When I saw that, I thought that was a joke, but he's. He's apparently, from everything I've read, one of the serious contenders to get his job back. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. He wants it. I mean, you can tell he misses it. He, he There is some talk. He thinks he maybe should have tried to hold on a little longer. And now he's going to try to go back. I think we're all happy to see politics that may be a little <laughs> nuttier than ours for, uh, for once. <laughs> uh, and Melanie's favorite story of the week. Hi, Melanie. 
I so um, this uh, for something completely different um, in Slate, Imogen West Knights wrote a diary of a cruise that she went on recently um, on the Danube River that was Gone Girl themed. Gone Girl being the like what? thriller, <laughs> murder, just very dark um, <laughs> um, novel slash movie. Um, and this is just like in the genre of like really classic, like why am I on this cruise um, articles mm-hmm. of which there is a, a, a long legacy. Um, and she, t- she recounts day by day what seems to be an extremely normal cruise, but with all of these weird murdery touches, like you would co- she would come home to her cabin to find a bloody handprint with an ominous note on her bed. Um, the whole vibe is just very much, what are we doing here and why is this happening? And I was legit cackling reading it. So um, in Slate, Imogen West Knights, her eight days on a Gone Girl cruise, I cannot recommend it enough. <laughs> I don't really want to tell too many people, Melanie, that you found that so fascinating. <laughs> now you've told the whole world. There you go. Well, my favorite story of the week uh, had to do with yet the latest episode in the long-running reality show, um, at least for six years now, the reality show called The Grifters. Uh, and this was the episode that, in fact, the Trump administration was charging the Secret Service exorbitant rates for staying where? In Trump properties, right? Including uh, an $1,800 tab for one night at the Trump International Hotel in Washington, D.C., um, charging, even charging the going rate for hotel rooms is just exact opposite of what Eric Trump, uh, the president's son, of course, promised on behalf of the Trump administration back in 2019. Everywhere that, that he goes, if he stays at one of his places, the government actually spends, meaning it, it saves a fortune, because if they were to go to a hotel across the street, they'd be charging him 500 bucks a night, whereas, you know, we charge him like, you know, 50 bucks. All right. So then uh, Eric, Eric Trump promising rooms might even be free. That's not the way it turned out. Again, the grifters, the grifters, uh, the latest episode. And with that, a big thank you to our panel, Melanie Mason. Jo- thanks for joining us from the West Coast. Emily Gooden and Jeff Duper here from Washington, D.C. Emily Gooden, of course, with the Daily Mail. Jeff Duper with the National Journal. And thanks to all of you for joining us today. We will be back on Tuesday, as you mentioned earlier, the next podcast with uh, Major Garrett from CBS News and Dave Becker, his co-author of their new book, The Big Truth, How to Combat the Big Lie, and that is having confidence in our election system and telling the big truth. That's up next Tuesday on the Bill Press Pod. In the meantime, have a great weekend, everybody. We'll see you next week.